0: It's really wonderful to be with you here today. Uh, it's so, such a blessing to be able to go to other churches. Sometimes they call that church hopping or shopping or whatever. Uh, but even when you have a home church, there is a blessing actually to worship with other congregations and with other gathering of fellow believers and just to remind ourselves that the body of Christ is bigger and that we have a family just dotted throughout uh, our counties and throughout our cities and throughout our states and even nations. So it's really a pleasure to be with you here. Uh, I hear so many good things about this church and my husband and I always enjoy when we're able to visit here. Uh, Just a little bit about myself as I I begin, I wanna talk a little bit about culture and the culture that America currently finds itself in. And this is something that I'm quite passionate about. I love studying culture. Is there anyone else that likes to actually study culture? There's a few, okay. So I'm preaching to, no, just kidding. it's something i'm quite passionate about because i am and have been since i was left home i have been in missions and i was a missionary in south africa for 15 years and as a cross-cultural missionary it was something where you don't just go and preach the gospel or you don't just go and serve, you go and you have to learn and study culture. You have to learn about this new place that you're in in order to effectively reach and communicate about Jesus. And so I did that in South Africa at 19 years old. I left and moved to South Africa and was there for mostly, uh, most of the next 20 years until I moved back to the States a year and a half ago. And so I'm 41 years old now, and so I have spent most of my adult life in South Africa, and currently now I am living as an adult for the first time here in America. That's a pretty, that's a pretty amazing thing, actually, when you grow up in a country and then leave, and then suddenly as an adult you come back. And... We would come for visits at times to the States. We would bring our family to reconnect, bring our children back to the States. And it also always would give you just a little peek into what's going on here in the States. And each time that we would come back, we would notice some different interesting things that America wasn't quite what we were used to when we had left. And you can maybe imagine that because maybe you live here and you think it's not quite what I'm used to. And even in South Africa, we worked with an organization called Youth with a Mission, which was a global, is a global missions organization. And we would get people from Western countries often that would want to come and study with us. And so we would get people from the United States, or Canada, or Australia, New Zealand, or from Europe, France, and England, all these different places, they would come down to South Africa along with South Africans and people from other African nations. So over the years, over many, many years, we would see uh, young people come from Western nations, Europe, North America, and we would see them come, and through the years, as each of them, little pockets of them would come, we would start to notice these people seem to be getting stranger and stranger. (laughs) Still the same funny accent, the Americans still talk too loud, and. You know, the Europeans still dressed in their unique European way. But there was something different. And some of the things that we noticed was that many of them would come and they would say they wanna learn about God and that they were Christians, but they would study with us and they would go back to the States and they would uh, communicate with me later and say, well, and I would ask them, how are you doing? How is your um, walk with God? And they'd say, well, actually I've become an atheist. And the first one or two times that happened, it was, it was like a punch to my gut. These were not just people who were kind of checking out Jesus, these were people who were passionate about the Word of God. And that over a couple years after they had left us, they had decided that God doesn't exist at all. And we would have students that would come from the states from good churches, and they would come, and we would train them, they would go through courses, we would talk about Jesus, and prayer, and evangelism, and we would send them on outreach for three months into different countries around Africa, and even different Asia, different parts of the world, and especially the Westerners, only the Westerners, would go on this outreach, and they would come back, and instead of being on fire for Jesus, some of them would say, I don't know if I want to be a Christian anymore. And we thought, what is is there something wrong with us? And we started talking to people they said, "No, that's happening to us too." And I would talk to people in the states and they would say, "Yeah, we have a problem because we have youth that are on fire for Jesus, but they can't last one semester in college." And so as we came back to the States, those little pockets of things that I saw became like drinking from a fire hydrant because I just started to see these things everywhere, this unique situation of Christians that were Christians, but there's something different. And I was like, God, what is that? That different thing and maybe you've asked that question too. So this morning I want to talk a little bit about that journey I've been on and I'm going to get a little bit nerdy. We're going to learn something new uh, just about culture this morning and we're going to talk about what God has to say in the hope in Jesus because there is hope for America. All is not lost. There is another missionary, a very famous missionary that I had known about for years that has been very helpful in this journey, and his name, you've probably never heard of him, his name is Leslie Newbegin. Leslie Newbegin, funny name, you'll probably never remember it, but he was a famous, uh, well-known missionary from England. And Leslie Newbegin, in 1936, packed up his family, his wife, his children, and they went as missionaries from England to India. And they, in those times when you were a cross-cultural missionary, often you would literally get on a boat, say goodbye to your family with your caskets, and off you would go. Because you would not, like we do today, just fly back once a year, once every two years, and have a little, you know, visit, and then go back. So he went to India and really left England, 1936, and came back in 1974. He was a missionary to India from 1936 to 1974. Now, in 1974, he packed up a car with his wife. They got in that car and they drove, imagine this, from India, they drove back to England overland. Had to put the car on a boat at one point, obviously. And he landed in England. Now imagine leaving England in 1936, and imagine coming back in 1974. Imagine that. World War II has happened. Culture has changed. Mass transportation has happened. The Beatles had happened. (laughs) Right? And Leslie Newbegin was actually not a famous missionary because of his time in India, which is where he spent the majority of his ministry. Very few people knew, know today that he was a missionary in India. What he is well known for is what he said when he came back to England. Because when he came back to England, he had similar questions to me, but was a much smarter man. And he said, what is going on? What is this planet that I am on called the United Kingdom. And Leslie Newbegin was the first person, you don't know him, but you know his influence. Because in 1974, he started uh, looking at culture, looking at scripture, and he started writing some books. And I have read the books, they're just brilliant, but he was the first person that said this. He was the first person that said the Western world, so United States, Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, the Western world is no longer a mission sending force, they are now a mission field. Now, today we know that, but back then that was crazy talk. Because back then, everyone, if you were a Westerner, you were a Christian. And maybe you were kind of a waffly Christian, and so we had to work on that, but you were a Christian. And he started saying, Oh my goodness, the mission field is now in the West. It is no longer the West who needs to go to the rest of the world. It is the rest of the world that now needs to come to the West and reach them. This, so that was the first thing. And we know that today because that is common language to us that we need to be on mission. We need to be missional Christians reaching out to our neighbor. That actually in the forties, fifties, sixties was not how you talked in churches. You didn't tell people you were a missionary to your neighbor, you just said you're Christians and your neighbors too, hopefully. The second thing he said that was revolutionary is not just that we need to be missionaries and reach the West now and reach America and reach England. We need to be relevant and we need to communicate the gospel in ways that make sense to them. And again, you guys know that. That's now normal part of our Christianity is that we need to not just read the King James Version of the Bible. Why? Well, because people don't talk like that anymore. Right? And so that's normal. That makes sense to us because of Leslie Newbigin saying we need to communicate the gospel in what we call contextualized ways, ways that make sense to the hearers. And so that's why we did the revolutionary thing. I went through it, because I grew up in the 70s and 80s, of people no longer wearing dresses to church. You can wear jeans. If someone got saved now, that wouldn't be crazy to them. But how many of you remember those days when it's like, whoa, it's so great someone can wear jeans and feel comfortable? That was all part of being relevant, and that's good. But there is one thing that we as a church have not adjusted to yet, and we have to make that adjustment, and that's what I wanna talk about this morning. That was just my introduction. <laughs> the, the thing that I want to talk about this morning is not that we need to be missionaries and be on mission to reach our neighbors. Is not just that we need to preach the gospel and communicate the gospel to our neighbors in ways that are relevant and make sense, It is also that we need to understand that our neighbors are of a culture that we do not understand. The big mistake that we have made up till now, I would propose, and many people would propose, is that we are treating, we are treating the mission field of America today like they are some average mission field anywhere else in the world, and they are not. And they are not. So that makes me want to turn, again, we're going to get a little bit nerdy for a second. So if you like to learn new things, this is going to be for you. The rest of you can hold tight because we're going to get to Jesus in a second. This brings me to something I want, and this is really, really important for you to get this. There's a man by the name of Philip Reef. And Philip Reef is a Jewish scholar. He's not even a Christian, but he gave a really um, helpful grid of how to look at culture. And I want to go through that today so that we can understand the world that we are in today. Philip Reeve said there's basically three types of culture, and I think we have a slide. The first culture, he said, this is what he called first cultures, but I will call them pre-Christian cultures. And he said, there are cultures in the world, which are what he called first cultures or pre-Christian cultures, cultures that have not been reached in any significant way with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not have an established church. And we know these cultures, uh, maybe if I were to be in South Africa and I went to a rural village in South Africa where I said, you know, have you heard about Jesus? And they would say, I've never heard of this man. Or, yeah, I've heard about him, but we've never accepted him. And that's traditionally, first cultures is what we think of as mission fields. Going to preach the gospel to those who have not heard or accepted Jesus. These are cultures where they have a a strong belief in the spirit world. And they do or don't do things because the ancestors might be angry at you. So that's what I would deal with in South Africa often. They would tell me, oh, don't do that. Why? Not because... Jesus said so, but because your ancestor might punish you. Your dead ancestor, by the way. That's a first culture. They don't have a common belief system and that this is our common beliefs this we all believe there is one God and there are the 10 commandments and we don't do those things. First, culture, first cultures don't necessarily have a common, established, written belief system. Okay, so you got that? You're good? Okay, he said there was a second culture and we'll show that one next. Second cultures are what we would call cultures, or cultures that are based on a creed or a belief system. And that would be, let's for example, 1950s America. 1950s America would be second culture. Notice 1950s, not today. And that would be where you have common belief systems. So in 1950s America, if you asked the average person, should we or should we not do the Ten Commandments, what would they say? Yeah, Ten Commandments, absolutely. We should do the Ten Commandments. Let's put it in the courthouse. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, all those things because America had a common belief system. It was established in a common understanding of justice. It was, uh, they believed in the spiritual realm, but they had a common understanding that there was one God of whom we all serve. Even non-Christians would believe in 1950s America, you know, do you believe in God? They wouldn't say who is God. They would say no or yes. Right? Oh, I don't know. I don't want to go to church. I'll feel guilty. They assume there is a God who judges. Okay, this is the important part. Third culture. He said there was a third culture. And third culture is what is not pre-Christian. It is not the second one of creedal or what we might call Christian. I hate to use the word Christian culture because not everything about Christian culture is Christian, as we all know. It is what we will call post-Christian culture and that's where we're at today. Post-Christian culture does not exist without second culture. It is built on top of second culture. It would not exist without it. This is our current culture that we are in. They do not They do not have an authority that is in a set of commandments. They do not have an authority that is in a single God. Their authority in third culture is one person and that is me. They reject all formal belief systems because whatever is true is true for you. Does this sound familiar? The authority is not in a sacred text or divine person. The authority is a self, and it would not exist without second culture. And this is why this is important, because third culture, which is America today, is built on top of second culture, in that they love some things from second culture. They love, they wouldn't call it this, but they love the kingdom of God. When we say righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, when we say mercy and kindness and justice, they say we want that. But third culture says, I want the kingdom, but I don't want your king. I want progress without the presence of Christ. Can I say that again? Culture today is taking Christianity. It is taking it and is taking the things that they want from it, but it is rejecting the things that they don't want. They are not just saying, I reject it. They are saying, I take the kingdom of God, and then I myself, as my God, improve on it because I know how to make it better. You Christians have a piece of the puzzle, thank you for that, but I don't like your oppressive sexual ethic. You Christians, you know, this is the, and that is great, but I don't like how you do this. And so I think third culture says, and America today says, we can have the kingdom, but we don't want the king. We are going, the only way for us to have progress is without the presence of Christ. But the truth is you can't have the kingdom without the king. And you cannot have progress without the presence. But this is the lie that they believe. And not only The problem is that we are sending young people out into the mission field of third culture as if we are sending them into the mission field of first culture. So the danger is that when you send a young person into a first culture, you can present the gospel. And the danger is you don't want to, as a Christian, bring the truth of the gospel, but colonize them at the same time. Right? And we know this. I don't want to go into a village of South Africa and say, follow Christ, but you also need to dress like me to do it. That's colonizing with the gospel. Bringing my culture with it. Does that make sense? The danger of sending young, of going into third culture is not that I bring the gospel, but that I colonize them. The danger is that I bring the gospel and I become colonized. Because third culture is an evangelistic culture. Are you following with me? And so we send, just an example, we send young people off to university and say, proclaim Christ as if they're not going into the lion's den. Because third culture isn't saying, well, you're a Christian. I just don't accept that. They're saying, you're a Christian? Great. Let me tell you how you can improve on that. Mercy's great. Kindness is great. Love is great. You're all about love. Let me tell you what love is. And our young people become colonized by the culture they are going to reach. They become reached instead of the reachers. And I don't have to, when I talk to young people, I don't have to explain any of this to them because they are living in it every single day. They're living in it every single day. And so what do we do? Relevancy is not going to work. Relevancy will not work. Preaching Jesus with skinny jeans to a third culture, nothing against skinny jeans. You can wear skinny jeans all you want, but it's not a strategy for reaching third culture. It is just a way we like to dress. Because third culture eats relevancy for breakfast. They really do. They're not impressed by any of our attempts at relevancy. We no longer just need to shape the message. We now more than ever need to shape the messenger. That would be ourselves, our young people, and the people in our churches. We need to be shaped in unique ways. And I wanna give you four things that are important for being a missionary to a third culture mission field. And the first one is that we need to be building a white hot faith in ourselves and in those we disciple, in our young people and those around us. And it's not just young people by the way. You know who I see saying you can have the kingdom without the king? is wives in their 40s speaking their truth finding their path dreaming their dreams and not in any significant way submitting to christ we need to be building a white hot faith into our people it is no longer enough It is no longer enough to be waffly. This is the good news. Being a lukewarm Christian is going to be gone in the years ahead. That's good news. But it's going to be scary because we're going to see a dividing because no longer will you be able to be a Christian and just be kind of lukewarm. The only way to survive a Christian, I believe, in the coming days in America is to have a white hot faith. We need to know in our bones, we need to know in our bones the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot know our personality test results more than we know the truth of Jesus. We cannot be more enamored with knowing self than knowing Christ. We cannot know and be told by the world that the important thing is to follow your inner voice more than it is to follow the voice of the Holy Spirit. We need to build that into people. Some of you are older, and you need to be Pauls to the Timothys that are coming behind. You need to not wait for them to ask. This is a word I have for you guys this morning. Do not wait for them to ask. You need to take the initiative and reach out and build them up in the faith and say, you can do this. Follow Jesus. Do not pursue the kingdom and leave the king behind because you'll end up with neither. You can do this. I'm looking at my time because in Africa you could just preach for three hours. I was told that's not acceptable here. The second thing that we need to be doing is being, communi- being a resilient minority. The days of a Christian majority are gone in America. Mourn it, bury it, cry your tears, and let's move on to the business of the kingdom. I think one of the biggest things holding us back is a generation of people who should be mentoring the next generation who are weeping because they're wishing for the good old days. The good old days have gone. Our young people, you ask them, are you a majority in your school? And you'll know the clear answer, no, I am not. It's only adults who think that somehow we are still going to be the majority. The young people know I am a minority. But we are not a minority without hope. We are a resilient minority. And throughout scripture, God used minorities for the biggest moves of God in history. He used the 120 people at Pentecost. Not today how we think, well, you need at least 1,000 to have a move of God. He said 120 sufficient. He used the minorities in the Old Testament prophets, small groups of people, small groups of people to speak to whole nations god is going to do it again today but we need to be resilient minorities full of hope again older generation be people who do not freak out about the changes but are full of hope we need you to be hope-filled because what happens when those who carry the hope of the world no longer have hope for the world We are nowhere, and we are lost. Older generation, we need you to speak into the lives of the younger ones saying you can do it and God can do it through you. It looks dark, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. It looks dark but the light is brighter. We need to be a resilient minority, not people who are panicking, but people are saying, this is where we're at, but God works in this way. We cannot be a church who is enamored with the power of the world. We need to be a church who is obsessed with the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the world counts numbers. The power of the Holy Spirit rests in confidence. We don't need to count numbers, we've got him. We don't count numbers to see if we're doing okay or not okay. We've got him within us. The third thing that we need to be is communities that ask hard questions. There was a study that was done in churches and one of the most significant things that kept people in their faith as if they were in a community that allowed them to ask the hard questions. Didn't try to, and it, this is the interesting thing, it, the people said it wasn't that they had all the answers, it was just that they allowed me to express the questions. We need to be communities that are not freaking out about race and racism, we need to be communities that are talking about it. Young people, again, go into a public school. They know all this. The church has to be a place that we can talk boldly, openly, and with a lot of humility about the racial dynamics in America. We need to be people where we can talk about the, the conversation on sexuality in America. It is, the, it is the number one issue facing us today. It's not that you have to have all the answers, it's just that we have a place that is not panicking because we've got God. Again, older people, you don't have to have all the answers to our questions because you have never even dreamed of the questions that people have. You're looking up in the dictionary, what is that? We need you to be a place where the hard questions can be asked and you can say, I don't know the answer but I know Jesus let's just turn to him. Let's find someone maybe that can give us some help. Be a church that is willing to ask those hard questions. The fourth thing is that we need a renewal of a passion for the Lordship of Christ. Jesus is not our life coach. He is not our buddy, he is our friend, but he is not only that. He is our Lord and our King. I mean, you even use the phrase Lordship of Christ with the general population, and that means nothing to them, I recognize that. But the authority of Jesus, the authority of Jesus Today, we hear, and American culture hears us say, Jesus is personal. You can you have a personal walk with him. He has a personal plan for you. There is, he's all about your personal dreams. And God is personal. Don't get me wrong. But you know how they hear that? Christianity is all about me. I know how we intend it, but that's not how they hear it. Christianity is all about me. And when it's all about me, why do you need Christianity? Just go on being all about yourself. We need people like Paul with Timothy. I want to read this verse in closing. Paul in 1 Timothy, he says to Timothy, his young disciple, this amazing charge. And he says, this is his charge, if we're talking about being charged. Chapter 6, verse 13, it says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion and power. That that would be our charge and that we will cultivate in our communities and in our lives a renewed emphasis on the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ in our lives. Because American culture wants mercy. They want kindness. They want peace. They want freedom from anxiety. And they are being told that submitting to anyone but yourself is going to destroy you. We need to reclaim the glorious truth that submitting to Jesus will not enslave you. It will free you to mercy. It will free you to kindness. It will free you to grace. Saying no and dying to yourself in American culture is their worst nightmare. But that's the tricky thing about the kingdom, isn't it? Dying to self is actually how we find ourselves. Isn't that backwards and wonderful and glorious? Submitting to Jesus is not losing ourselves. Submitting to Jesus is finding ourselves in the presence of a kingdom that gives us all the things we initially desired when we were following ourselves. And so we need to be people who, like Paul said to Timothy, charging him, In the name of the one who is blessed and sovereign and King of kings and Lord of lords. Following him, you cannot lose. A culture that wants the kingdom without the king, you can have the kingdom, but you must not just have the king, you must submit to this king finding ways to get there and show them the glory and the grace and the joy that is found in submitting to a good God who has nothing but good things for us. Our young people are desperate. Our old people are desperate. There is hope for America. And I think that finally we're at a place as a nation where we're no longer fooling ourselves. We're saying this is where it's at we are lost, we feel a little overwhelmed, and God's saying, yay, you're at the end of yourself. This is great, I've been waiting for this moment. So now he can move and he can have all the glory and the honor forever and ever, amen.